0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast, and ours, too. I'm your co-host, TJ. I'm Bridget. And uh, this week, we are talking about the episode, Deadline for Murder. So, Bridget, would you like to give us a brief summary of this episode?
1: Yeah, so Jessica's in Boston this week when her friend Haskell, a newspaper reporter, has a heart attack and... She's deeply worried about him and goes to talk to his editor and finds out that he's dramatically changing his newspaper in all sorts of sleazy ways. And right as she's talking to him, he drops dead. So who did it? Many people could have. Um, and basically, Jessica, I think part of the cuteness of this episode is that while Haskell's in the hospital, uh, the two of them joke about how Jessica is essentially taking on the role of an investigative
0: journalist. A leg woman, as it were, or a leg person, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> the sports writer
1: calls her shoe leather at one point, which I, is that, I'm, I, I've i never heard it this is, expression yeah. before.
0: I mean, I felt like I was in the middle of like a 1940s, like, noir, mm-hmm. or, or perhaps, you know, some, His Girl Friday, something like that, you know, one of these old films that has that kind of snappy dialogue and the particular kind of newspaper person, man yep. that, you know, we're seeing with Haskell. Yep. Which is, you know, kind of fun. I, I like those kind of old-fashioned episodes just because they're the the snappiness of the dialogue, I was just like, wow, I feel like I'm in the middle of a Raymond Chandler novel.
1: The dialogue is so great and the rapport between her and Haskell is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And it raised lots of questions for me, Teach, because he's like lying in his hospital bed. Um, he gets really excited about the fact that Bennett, his publisher, was murdered and that there's something to investigate. And he's like, This could be my comeback story. So he's like, bring me a phone, bring me a typewriter. He's smoking cigars in his hospital bed. Um, he's so many shir- questions about that. Me too. And he's shirking the medication they give him. So it's like, okay, and he's eating like fried food. It's like, I don't understand why he has like this complete death wish so soon after a heart attack. But um, while like Jessica's like totally enabling all of these behaviors – And in the end, like, it's even cute in the final scene. He's like, you could come with me and, like, be my apprentice, basically. And in a few years, you'd probably be a pretty good journalist. And they share a laugh at this. And I just think they have such remarkable chemistry and rapport as characters and as Mm -hmm. actors that it felt to me like Haskell was an old character we'd seen before. Yes.
0: And, I mean, part of that has helped because – they move through so many different registers of their friendship. Like when Haskell mm-hmm. was first admitted to the hospital, he's essentially on death's door. Like he is pale. His heart rate is, you know, not good. I mean, he's had a major heart attack. Like that's the thing. And, you know, Jessica is filled with compassion and wants to help him, you know, and sort of help him recover from this. But then, of course, it shifts into a different gear once they decide they're going to pursue whoever murdered this newspaper mogul. And so it's just, as you say, like, it moves through, you know, so many different kinds of friendship moments that we get kind of a whirlwind tour of of their bond that they share with each other. Plus, we get reminiscences of when, you know, she worked for him ages ago, but was so hopelessly in love with Frank and wanted to pursue a career as a teacher that she was never going to make it as a journalist.
1: You know, this raises interesting questions for me, um, because... We've seen now multiple times when Jessica is very friendly with sort of scandalous or rakish or sleazy or just just like not clean-cut good upstanding men you know we have I think Harry McGraw is uh-huh. an example I think Leslie Nielsen's character in Dead man's gold uh-huh. was a, an example. We have have lots of these, and she always loves these guys, and she always is, like, rolling her eyes, but, like, smiling and, like, going along with them, and it just left me with so many questions, like, was Frank like Mm. that? Is that what she's attracted to, or was Frank the complete opposite, and he was, like, this boring, fuddy-duddy, upstanding, good man, you know, good to marry? But she's always kind of had like a little passion mm. and excitement for this other type of guy. Yeah,
0: you know, it strikes me that if we were to taxonomize Jessica Fletcher, according to like old Hollywood standards, like she's kind of like one of those heroines that's one of the guys, you know, that that, that, that men uh-huh. don't find her threatening, but nor do they fetishize her either. So she's not really like a femme fatale or this, you know, this object of desire. I mean, they do desire her, but she's also just one of those people who's one of the gang, if that makes sense. And I think that that carries on into her, you know, into her older age, where she clearly still has this kind of bond. And I think just as importantly, they respect her, which is, I think, a really key part of that dynamic. Because it's clear that, you know, however much Haskell may, you know, give her a hard time, that he really does sort of respect her both as a writer, but also as, you know, as an aspiring journalist.
1: What's interesting that you say that she's one of the guys because one of the moments that stands out to me in this episode, and we'll get to the plot, I'm sure. But (laughs) thematically, one of the moments that stood out to me is um, when she and the female police lieutenant are at the police station. And the lieutenant is like, look, I cannot give you any latitude to be a part of this investigation because I'm a woman. And I have to do everything by the book because it's that much harder for me to be a woman. And she makes a comment about having flowers in her office and getting laughed at.
0: Oh, yes, Um, yes, yes.
1: And Jessica's like, I understand, you know. And they sort of share this moment of connection over what it's like to be a a woman in a man's world or at least a woman in – a. I mean, Jessica, I would say, isn't necessarily in a man's world as an author, but – a woman who is highly intelligent and capable and is always being misunderstood and underrated by men
0: oh absolutely i mean and i guess i would say that writing is not a man's world but publishing most certainly is yeah that's true and so you know she's she has to constantly wrangle you know pe- men who look down on her and as we as you alluded to like all the many times she's had to deal with police lieutenants who are like Excuse me, Miss Fletcher. We don't need your help. We don't. We, need, we don't need a novelist's help with this. You know there's uh, the many iterations.
1: Oh yeah, some old grandma. What are you gonna do to help us, right? Yeah, exactly. Go back to Cabot Cove,
0: right? Or Cabot Falls, as this as, as this, this one says. Yeah. <laughs> and holy crap, where there's some shoulder pads. I mean, come on. <laughs> and one last thing about her relationship with Harry, or sorry, with. Um, haskell uh, haskell
1: played by harry guardino
0: right um is that it kind of reminded me personally of my my relationship with my advisor who is not quite as brusque as as haskell but also can be quite abrupt sometimes while at the same being very time being very encouraging so i don't know i felt something resonating with me
1: you should like say his name like give him some credit here
0: yeah, my advisor Stephen Cohan, uh, Professor Emeritus.
1: Um, you always say Cohan. Why don't you say Cohen? He
0: doesn't say Cohen, he says Cohan.
1: He really does? Yeah. He emphasizes the second syllable. Yeah. Okay, so this is your relationship with Steve, really? Yeah. That's so funny.
0: You know, he gives me a hard time, but it's clear that he's, you know, he sees potential and wants to help me get there. And he's just kind of much as Haskell is a force of nature, Steve Cohan is a is a force of nature.
1: <laughs> That's nice. <I laughs> In a positive that. way. I like that. Yeah.
0: I mean, I have another friend and colleague and conspirator who's also a force of nature and kind of bullies me in a gentle way. Um, her name is Bridget. Um, <laughs> and my other co-author I and creator.
1: not bully you. And my
0: other co-creator, Kelly, also bullies me. It's just kind of the dynamic I draw, I think. I'm easily believable. I mean, at
1: this point, I don't think you should be pointing fingers at any of us, but I think you should be looking at what the common denominator is. Thank you. It's not my fault.
0: It's not my fault you're so submissive.
1: Do you want to talk guest stars or do you want to talk plot? Let's talk
0: plot because I was kind of underwhelmed by the guest. I mean, not that they're not important, but I wasn't. Ah, I know.
1: I'm
0: just saying I personally was not wowed by the guest stars.
1: Oh, sir. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about the plot. So as I said, the newspaper editor gets murdered right in the middle of a party celebrating his one year term as editor. Uh, And he falls down dead and his face is bright red. And Jessica's like, oh, that was a cerebral hemorrhage. And then it turns out she was right, which totally makes the police suspicious of her, rightly so.
0: Well, I mean, on the other hand, I had to be I was kind of raised an eyebrow because I was like, If, in fact, Jessica had committed this murder, do you really think that she would have then drawn so much attention to her knowledge of that murder? (laughs) Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, if she's this cunning to, you know, go to the effort of... giving him some kind of medicine or medication that will then interact with alcohol to induce this cerebral hemorrhage, would she then talk about it so openly in front of everyone and be like, right. by the way, everyone, I did it. Like, yeah. I was like, okay, now that's some amateurish police work right there. Well,
1: it's my understanding that's the kind of shit they actually do, although I've never been involved
0: in an actual murder investigation. That sounds like something that someone who has actually been in murder, murder investigation would say now, doesn't
1: it? <laughs> so as TJ said, um, the cerebral hemorrhage was caused by accommodation of this drug and alcohol, which don't have to be taken at the same time, which is our clue that anyone could have done it at any time, right? Because everybody's right. drinking champagne at this party. Now, right before he falls down dead, the old editor, who was like running it like a family paper, like his kids were all involved, um, gets in a fight with him and hits him. And somehow cuts his cheek. I'm assuming he was either wearing a ring or a watch or something. It's very strange that his cheek got cut, but it got cut as a clue, so that when the old editor's daughter presses a handkerchief to it, ostensibly she could have poisoned the handkerchief.
0: Exactly. Which that would have been a really cool resolution if, if they'd gone that way.
1: Mm, if they'd,
0: what if they'd like both been involved? Which is something the
1: police lieutenant suspects
0: at one point. Right. Like they
1: orchestrated this whole thing. Yeah. Right. But no, it was just his right-hand man killing him with his sinus medication earlier in the day.
0: Now, what strikes me about this murder victim is that he does fit the mold that we've established is kind of, yeah. you know, so c- consistent across murder, she wrote, is he is the kind of asshole patriarchal figure in a particularly, and is a totally. very specifically like ruthlessly capitalist kind of figure because he wants to change authentic, meaningful investigative journalism into basically... What journalism is sometimes today, which is just chasing the biggest new scandal story and feeding it to the hungry masses, which yeah. is a pretty good like presage of presaging of what comes with journalism in the next te- te- you know decade and a half.
1: Yeah, and I think you know it's it's presented to us as like a legitimate newspaper, presumably with some sort of journalistic integrity and following some sort of journalistic code of ethics. Um, and yet under his leadership, it's done things like take salacious photos and then misrepresent what's happening in them. So there's one of Jessica, like tripping or something, and they're like, look at her in the arms of her lover, you know, so it's, uh, I think what he's doing is destroying journalistic integrity and like turning this into a tabloid. And so it walks a fine line between the two in a way that I think is eerily prescient of where we are today, where it's. I think often very difficult to suss out what is tabloid and what is actual news for the average person,
0: right, yeah, exactly. and that is so what like infuriates Haskell is that you know the work he has put into conducting an interview is then butchered and re put together to look significantly different and to misrepresent what's actually happened. Because Haskell so, re- so firmly represents this kind of earlier model of journalism and this early moder- earlier model of journalist, like, you could see why it would be infuriating for someone like that to have their work in their mm-hmm. entire like, way of being a professional, bolderized, really.
1: And the first glimpse we get of that is in the opening scene when Haskell uh, collapses with his heart attack in the middle of the editor's office, and our editor, Bennett, says, go get the photographer. Right. That's his first thought, not call nine one one, not let's do CPR. Get a photographer. Right.
0: It's you know it's...
1: disgusting. So and we're yeah. supposed to hate this guy. And I love it because as you said, like we're back to classic murder she wrote, which we've drifted away from for a while. This right. is like how the series started, right? The ruthless capitalist gross white guy. He gets his comeuppance for being so horrible
0: right and he is horrible to truly everyone except for you know his like bodyguard who can we talk about the bodyguard for a minute
1: yeah the goon
0: yeah I have an entire headcanon where they were actually – like where the goon is actually in, hopelessly in love with the editor guy and that's I, why
1: – I knew you were going to – I knew you were going to go there. I just somehow – when you said, can we talk about this, I knew this is where this was going to go.
0: Well, we had to hit the drinking game that everybody's gay. like that's the- <laughs> So we had to hit that note. Um, so I wanted to, get that. Well, I wanted to sneak I'm, that in there before I forgot. Why would you
1: think that he and the goon were lovers and not Eugene Roche's character, his right-hand man, who's like utterly devoted to him
0: for 25 years? There was just something about the goon that just read to me as being like unrequited. Yeah. Maybe maybe an electric complex, but with a man, I don't know, whatever you call that. Um,
1: I think especially the scene at the end, right? So eventually Jessica figures out who did it and she breaks into the newspaper office and she's confronted by Eugene Roche's character, right? The editor's right-hand guy and – he is confessing and they're talking through it all and the goon is like standing outside listening with a gun and he comes in and he's like, now that I know who did it, I'm going to kill you. And Jessica's like, he's, you know, tr- trying to explain like Bennett wasn't worth it. Bennett didn't love you back the mm. way that you love him. Right. And, like this isn't – you got to let the police handle this. Like killing isn't going to help anything. Mm-hmm. And at one point Stephen says, he's dead now. You have to move on. It's like he's, he's been dead like two days. But I think maybe that's where you're picking up on that sort of homoerotic tension is, like, his absolute desire for vengeance on him, on Bennett's death, was, like, maybe driven by something
0: more than just friendship. Or even more than just, like, fatherly affection. Like, you mm-hmm. know, that, that Bennett was, like, his father figure. had mm-hmm. picked him up as a – how does he describe himself? A former football player looking for jobs in the Oklahoma oh, Co- oil fields or gay. something?
1: Yeah, this sounds really gay.
0: <laughs> Yeah, it's like a late 1960s, early 1970s, gay pulp romance. Like, come on. It's like, it's right there.
1: And then he said, call me by your name. And then he ran off to Italy.
0: I wish I could quit you is what he said at some point.
1: No, I was going for something with the AIDS app on purpose.
0: Oh, I know. But I was, I yeah. mean, if we were, but it's more, <laughs> there are elements of both call me by your name and Brokeback Mountain. And there are in this, in this romance that we're constructing our headcanon.
1: So the other interesting plot element we have is um, the narrative that Bennett uh, once knocked up a lady who then died in childbirth, and so and he wanted nothing to do with them. So the baby was raised as an orphan in the foster care system and is now Kay, who's one of his reporters, only she doesn't know that he's her father. But... His assistant does, which is why he hired her, because he wanted Bennett to reform and become a good dad and, like, learn to take responsibility. And when Bennett refused, that's why he's murdered him. But along the way, we have scenes of Kay um, working with a childcare center for... I guess they're supposed to be orphans. It's very unclear. <laughs> looks like a daycare center, but she's talking right. about the system and foster care and she writes articles about this and she's t- talking about it all with Jessica. And I think it's, it's just a nice commentary on a moment that actually is still continues today. But like, I think particularly in the Reagan era, you know, concerns over child safety, child welfare, who's going to watch the kids, who's going to raise the kids, you know, those sorts of things were frequently in the news. Mm-hmm. And I, so I thought it was mm-hmm. really nice that they touched upon some of those issues through Kay.
0: Yeah, although you would think that, you know, having spent literally your whole career with this guy after he plucked you out of writing ad copy, you would just kind of accept that he's a complete unreformable asshole, (laughs) given like, you know, 20 years is a long time to work, or however long it is, is a long time to work with someone and kind of, you get a sense of what a person's capable of and what they're not. And so, you know... And it is interesting to me, too, that he is one of those murderers who kind of just blurts out the truth as soon as Jessica confronts him with the reality. Because at first she only thinks she knows because of the pocketing, the uh, switching of the medicine. But then she's like, but you also blurted out that he died of a cerebral hemorrhage when you wrote the headline for the newspaper, which you couldn't have known unless you had done it. Because the story came out before the
1: autopsy was even done.
0: The bulldog edition. Which you think
1: the police might have noticed a little bit. You would have thought so. In their investigation. Right, you would have thought so. <laughs> But yeah, he he breaks down crying, even like he confesses really easily, and he's crying, like he so regrets right. what he's done. Or at gone. least
0: I don't know that he. I wouldn't say that he regrets, but it at least feels remorse, which is slightly different. Or uh, yeah, okay, yeah, because I mean, she sure. still is like, yeah, Bennett was a complete asshole <laughs> for refusing to admit it his own daughter.
1: So so I what I love about that confession though is that it it also brings us back to classic murder she wrote where. You know, for I think in some of the more recent episodes, we've had people who are like laughing as they confess or just like totally cold blooded. And here we, we, as you say, we see remorse, which we used to always see. And so it's just it's nice to be back to that. And then we also don't end there, which is really nice. We get the coda happy scene, which is Jessica and Haskell at the hospital Mm -hmm. and Haskell's got a new job and he's getting out of the hospital and everything's going to be great. And actually the last minute, Um, the final shot is Jessica laughing. So it's like, ah, we're just back to classic Murder, She Wrote, which I love. I love this episode for that reason.
0: Yeah, I did too. Like I was, I was kind of, you know, I thought the plot was, everything was nice. Like this was just a really nice episode of Murder, She Wrote that is kind of paradigmatic of the, of the series as a whole, like at least the non Cabot Cove episodes. Yep. And I mean, what also strikes me is that, you know, What's nice about this which well if one can say anything is nice about a murderer is that he doesn't do it for gain or for his own selfish interests oh, that's or true. you know he doesn't do it out of you know malice necessarily it's just on the behalf of someone else which I think is you know also it's actually a, really nice that sometimes people aren't just you know sociopathic monsters who are capable <laughs> of killing other people
1: like David at Ogden Stiers was a couple of episodes ago Right
0: exactly Right, or the crooked cop and, you know. Would you it, kill
1: for me if somebody was mean to
0: me? Oh, obviously.
1: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I feel I mean, about I, that. I, I shouldn't like have ask, to, to ask that
0: question. <laughs> like, you have to ask that? Like, of course I would. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would hope that I wouldn't blurt out the end. I wouldn't inadvertently admit that I, you know, to whatever incidental piece of information that some crafty novel writer might be able to seize on to convict me, but.
1: Or just kill her too, I guess, to keep her quiet. <laughs>
0: well that's the other thing is he doesn't like i expected him to like respond violently he doesn't even act out that rage when he stumbles upon her rooting through his files in his office no
1: he really didn't he didn't lunge at her he didn't threaten her
0: he's just sort of like yeah i suspect he knew when he as soon as he stepped in the office the game was up you know jig is up it's funny though that jessica also pretends to be someone else to get into the office like she's like sweet talking the security guard uh-huh. And she's like, oh, yeah, if I don't get this this clipboard, it could be my job. And, A clipboard you know, for
1: blood donation. You know. <laughs> I love when she makes up this shit. It's so good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, we don't always get to see Jessica pretending to be someone else. And I like this one because she's just, she goes with the bit. Yeah. You know, as unconvincing as it is, she's just like, I'm going to do this and it works. And it works
1: and she even like calls him out. She's like, "Did you sign up?" and he's like gets all flustered cuz he's afraid of needles and I think that that's what gets her into the office, right? Cuz he feels bad. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> I mean, really, JB Fletcher, ma- m- m- um Woman of Do Mystery, not like, Master her. Mistress of Disguise. Yeah. Like she is someone who can, you know, whether it's dressing up as a <laughs> an aficionado of the circus or as <laughs> A rather frazzled blood donation receptionist person, whatever she is.
1: So let's talk guest stars. Okay. Okay. So um, we have Eugene Roche, as I've already said, who is our murderer. And um, he feels, everybody in this feels very familiar to Murder, She Wrote. And then I was surprised to find out it was either their first of many So, I'm remembering them from later episodes that I've just seen a lot, or this is actually their only one, and there's just something about them that feels Murder She Mm. Wrote ish. So, this is his first Murder She Wrote, and I feel like we've seen him 10 times already, but I love him. I've loved him since soap. What do you know? Mm -hmm. What's
0: your Eugene Roche story? What's my Eugene Roche story?
1: Yeah. Where do you love him
0: from? I mean, I don't know that I love him from any specific thing. I think that. In the way that you described, like people just belonging in Murder She Wrote, like he just feels like one of those people who just belongs in Murder She Wrote and in television. Probably just means he's an '80s character. That's what I was going to (laughs) say. That's I think part of the comfort of character actors is that they just feel like they belong in television. Yeah. Yeah. And there's just something really uniquely television about these kinds of character actors. Like there's just something very specific about the medium that calls. For that kind of comfort level with these kind of individuals, not that there aren't character actors in film, obviously, but they feel different than they do in television.
1: Yeah, and another one is Peter Mark Richman, who is um, our murder victim, Lamar Bennett. Um, And I I was totally surprised this is his only murder. She wrote, I feel like I've seen him a 100 times. Mm-hmm. but he does play a very similar uh obnoxious character well not so murderous but an obnoxious character on this really fun episode of star trek the next generation where they find some cryogenically frozen bodies from the 80s and like unfreeze them and he's the one who's like a capitalist businessman and he's like i'm gonna call my lawyers and they're like there's no he's like i've got money i can bribe you and they're like this is star trek like we don't use money anymore so i love him um like what the earth do you think? Of this yeah, right. dude? But weirdly, his only uh, his only episode, we have Harry Guardino as Haskell and he'll come back as Haskell again and then he'll do some other episodes and different characters. We saw him as the police lieutenant in Birds of a Feather, which of course has become mm-hmm. an episode that we keep talking about because we seem diametrically opposed on the subject of Victoria and Howard. We are definitely. That
0: is one of the long-standing rivalries that we will have intellectually speaking. One of the
1: long-standing Cabot Cove Gazette rivalries.
0: That's the stuff that people tune in for.
1: We also have Glenn Turman. It's his mm-hmm. return after murder to a jazz beat, right? And he almost does pretty much nothing in this episode. But it's nice to see him not play a horrible, you know, murderous, deceitful drug smuggler,
0: which he did in that episode, and not get murdered. I mean, Glenn Turman dies in almost everything oh, I've seen him one-
1: in. Yeah, thankfully he doesn't die in this one.
0: Yeah, because he also dies in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, the movie from a couple years ago. He dies in, uh, I think Fargo is another show that he was in. Also dies in that. <laughs> dies in the episode of. He did
1: not die in a different world. Well, that's good.
0: It's nice to see him survive the yeah. whole episode. But as you say, it's they underutilize him, but it is nice to see him at least for a few minutes.
1: Totally. Same with Ken Olin, who will, in a few years, be famous for 30-something. Mm. He's another one of the reporters, like Glenn Turman, who um, gets a, a little bit of screen time, but really isn't that essential to the plot and really doesn't do much. But he's there, so, you know, kudos to the casting team at Murder, She Wrote for recognizing his talent before he became, like, mega late 80s, early 90s TV famous. Right. That's all. Okay. <laughs> There's women, and I'm not naming them, which is like the unfeminist thing to do, but there you
0: go. I mean, they are kind of non-entities. Like, there's the the old newspaper magnate's daughter, but she really just kind of appears for like two minutes.
1: Okay, let's talk about her for a second, because um, she's obviously supposed to be one of the suspects. But at one point, um, she and her dad are at their mansion on their little lawn, having lemonade or whatever the hell rich people do in the afternoon. And um, he's like, I'm going to get the newspaper back and I'm going to turn this around. Bennett was terrible. And she was like, Bennett made the stock price go up and mm. it's, um, it's, it's led me to a whole new lifestyle, she says. So she's like, I liked what Bennett did, so I wouldn't have killed him. And I'm like, I'm very confused by this because it appears that you grew up with money. So, like, what is this new lifestyle that the stock price going up afforded you? Because she says this, like, on the lawn of a mansion.
0: Right. I would suspect that maybe things were going south with the newspaper, and therefore, well, we're told they were. Yeah. 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 So, you know, as that happens, that she may have had to auction off a few of her, you know, diamonds or a few of her precious paintings, and so, (laughs) or her Porsche. And now, with the upswing, you know, she gets to reap all the benefits of legacy media, I suppose. I don't know. It's a weird
1: clue. Um,
0: I mean, rich people, I mean, if I've learned anything. I don't anything... think they were that rich, though. But just... Right. I mean, the wealthier members of our society tend to be very jealous of every little penny that they have. So
1: That's true. I think it's just a whole new lifestyle implies that they had nothing. Right. And now under Bennett's leadership, she has this fabulous life. So it's very confusing. But other than that, and being a red herring suspect, she doesn't mm. really do much. In fact, we don't really learn much about her along the way. Right. Nor about the guy who used to run the paper, who takes it over at the end. Like, he doesn't really have much screen time. We don't really learn much about him.
0: Right. Although I have serious questions about his ability to run a (laughs) newspaper. Why is that? In the 80s. Well, I mean, it's the 80s, and he's not too far from his 80s. So, like... (laughs) Listen, we have a president. I know. I'm just saying that, you know... uh, Yeah, I'm just... I'm, let's just say I'm skeptical. And plus, it seems like he's already. He had
1: a president at that time.
0: Yeah. Well, what I'm saying is, like, it's not just his age, it's also his wor- his experience. And it seems like mm-hmm. he wasn't great at running it before. So I'm not sure why there would be any change now.
1: <laughs> mm hmm. Mm hmm. He had a sort of romantic notion about, like, what a newspaper was. Right. I'm not sure he's going to survive, like, the digital transition.
0: Maybe this is, like, a, an alternate timeline, like, where instead of going. Yes. Defunct newspapers. There's a revitalization of investigative journalism in the 80s that leads to, like, you know, this burgeoning of newspapers and other kind of respectable journalism throughout the 90s and early 2000s. And we're not. In the-
1: oh my gosh. Can we go into that landscape we that?
0: that we're currently in? Can we please go into a world where we don't all get our news from Twitter? Like, that would be amazing.
1: <laughs> Which includes you and me. I, I'm we aware. Should- we shouldn't but yeah exactly i'm twitter twitter people get news today twitter blogs TikTok. social media brain
0: is a horrible horrible phenomenon and i hate it even (laughs) as i have imbibed it anyway we didn't need to go off on that screen but i like i said i'm just there's all sorts of headcanon i've established from this episode that's what i'm getting at like
1: so it sounds like you
0: really liked it. Dad. I did. I mean, I was surprised after I watched it, and even more surprised during the course of this conversation how much I got out of it. Like for a relatively like meat and potatoes kind of murder she wrote episode.
1: It really is. It feels like, um, in a way, not very, not a very standout episode because it's tried the tried and true formula that we love. But in that sense, it's also as you said paradigmatic, and so maybe it will stand out because. That's the structure we really like and respond to. Good on you, writers.
0: Yes, and they, it taps so well into sort of currents of culture and society that are percolating in the 80s, which I really love when Murder, She Wrote does yeah. that. Well, it seems like we have exhausted our discussion of this very good episode, which is good. So I guess we'll sign off for this week. So for the Cabot Coat Gazette, I am your co-host, TJ West. I'm Bridget Keyes. And we will see you next week.
1: The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarata, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.